Hey everyone and welcome back to Dolly Back, the film podcast where we indulge and defend our favorite films, whether they're beloved classics, forgotten gems, or misunderstood masterpieces. My name is Eric Meyerhofer and joining me as always is my co-host, Krishiv Parmar. Listeners, your hosts are about to knock on the sky. Listen for the sound. I mean, this is biodigital jazz, man. It's, it's very, <laughs> it, this is a very exciting opportunity. Not to say we have favorites on this pod, we love all our movies equally, but you and I can both agree, and this is a birthday mm-hmm. episode after all, so everyone, please send your well wishes to Eric for his birthday. It's going to be one week removed, but if you haven't, now's a good chance, but this movie in particular, this is a special episode, folks. This is a special mm-hmm. episode. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Krisha, for indulging me for my birthday episode. I mean, I think this is... This has been a movie that's like been kicking around on our to-do list for a little while now, basically ever since I think we kind of conceived the idea of the podcast, and now it's, we, I just kind of said, hey, let's just finally do it. Interestingly enough, when I approached this film immediately, I, I was kind of just going to go at it of the way how I see it as being this largely meditative science fiction film that works in this legacy sequel category in such an interesting way. But after a little bit of research, I, I do kind of want to talk about it in terms of how it's this sort of kind of admirable big swing on behalf of Disney as a studio to kind of keep up with a lot of other goings on in the industry, specifically James Cameron's release of Avatar the year before. And the even more interesting thing is we just kind of had another sort of go at this this dualism in popular filmmaking with Kaczynski releasing Top Gun Maverick the same year that Cameron releases the second Avatar, The Way of Water. Until Avatar came out, Top Gun actually held the rank of highest grossing film of the year. And I think, well, there's obviously no question that the first Avatar made more money than Tron Legacy. We'll get into that a little bit later. It was still kind of interesting because there's a lot of stuff that Disney was doing with this movie in the like we talk about the post matrix world a lot in the reading that you provide and i think we'll get into that and and even kaczynski kind of was working in this post matrix world of filmmaking everybody was i mean the matrix was just this watershed moment yeah but it's also somehow barely a year detached a post avatar world too so maybe we get into that a little bit a little bit more but i think at a very base level what was the first experience you had with this movie i think i saw it the first week it came out, I think it was around really yeah December something or other. I saw it on IMAX, so I mean very much the same draw that Avatar had. I was a little too young to see Avatar, uh, according to my parents, but uh, this movie was just all right with the discs and disintegration, as opposed to the machine guns and the and the mm-hmm. you know what's going on with the Navi. But in any case, you know this was a pretty this was like an ur text for me and my approach to like. I guess blockbuster filmmaking and like what I mean by that is like this is something that certainly I've been sitting with for a while and it's very rare that you have a movie from your childhood that was directed towards kids it was definitely Disney's appeal at breaking into that market through like a blockbuster formula and using like a tech demo to kind of power the production but for me it was it was very foundational it was like my introduction mm-hmm. to Daft Punk it was my introduction to these heavy CGI kind of epics there's a lot just going on in this particular film. I think, you know, maybe Disney didn't found, find the widespread success they were expecting, but they certainly made a convert out of me. And, you know, that for better or worse, we can get into that as the episode goes on. Yeah. That's so interesting. I did not see this in a movie theater. I did not see this until years afterwards. And I, I really don't know what it was that... I think what it was is that I knew that my dad had talked about the first Tron before because the first Tron directed by... Steven Leisberger. It came out in 1982, and it's the first like film made with completely computer-generated imagery. It looks like the very first film gener- or made with completely computer-generated imagery, too. It's very, very clunky, very robust, but very preliminary in its conception of, of VFX and CGI and so on and so forth. But I knew that he had liked it. So I was like, okay, well, and he said, well, you know, let's watch this one, I think. And I'm pretty sure it just had been kicking around on Netflix or something before Disney Plus had come out. And ever since, it's just become this, like, ritual-like movie for me. You know, I was, t- I was talking to my girlfriend, and I, I, was, I was kind of reflecting on what makes a blockbuster film mean something to me. 
and and somehow it's always like a father-son dynamic really gets to me you know i was a huge fan of guardians 2 of all the marvel movies for me to like i was a huge <laughs> fan of that and i'm a huge fan of this movie you know, it's just like this movie will always be tied to the experience of watching it with my dad for like, like numerous times. You know, I think, you know, reflecting that on, off of the relationship between Kevin and Sam and so on and so forth. Not to get like sentimental at the very beginning of the episode, but I think that that's, that's kind of the, the colossal meaning that it holds for me. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for a lot of viewers, this might be a bit of a departure from... I'm not going to say we ever assume this position of objectivity ever when we approach a movie, but I think compared to something like Pierrot Le Fou, when we're going out of our comfort zone particularly and trying to you know, make an exercise based on a filmmaker we're not familiar with or that kind of ruffles our own feathers, this mm-hmm. is an opportunity, I think much like Speed Racer, and I think for yourself much like Throwdown, where a movie just sits with you for a while and you're able to see how your ideas on it, your position on its aesthetic... And narrative kind of foundations, they percolate over the years and they grow over time. I mean, for me personally, mm-hmm. what I mean by that is when I first saw the film, the, you know, the father-son dynamic was very, uh, I guess, like at its most elemental for me. Like I never had any care for the religious kind of undertones. It didn't even occur to me that Kevin was this godlike figure, or at least he's presented this kind of New Testament kind of God that you might expect with the gray beard, the billowing robes. That wasn't really in my mind until I was like 13 or something. And now growing mm-hmm. and being able to be, you know, interact with other texts, comparing it to The Matrix, that might have been a yep. super easy comparison for most people. But to come back to it as for myself, I've seen The Matrix, I think, three times now and being able to come back to this. It's a really fun comparison and a lot of things emerge from that. So I guess what I'm trying to say with this is you just being able to sit with the film is very rare that we get to do that. I would say Speed Racer was maybe our first kind of foray into like an analysis like that. But this is very much, I guess just us being able to touch base with something that obviously has had a presence in both of our lives, right? For me, this film is closer in the way that I feel about something like Attack of the Clones. Yeah. And something I, totally. and something like how I feel about, I don't know, The Long Goodbye or something like that. But maybe to kind of diverge our conversation a little bit, because I think when you discuss a, a film that's meant to be a studio tentpole, I do think you have to come at it by like an industry context. This is an interesting case of Disney taking a very big swing on something that in our post kind of, not, we're absolutely not in the post MCU world yet, but this movie came out in 2010 and by 2010, there had been what, two Marvel movies? No, by the time that this came out, there was three Marvel movies because Iron Man 2 had come out already. Disney didn't even own Marvel yet. Marvel Studios was its own independent company. How do you kind of grapple or how do you deal with the fact that Disney, of all, of all studios, is gambling $170 million of a budget on a director that's never made a feature film before, at least has never made a big feature film before? You're making a legacy sequel to a film that came out mm, 28 years prior and a film that really not a lot of people saw. Steven Leisberger's first Tron that came out in 1982 made $50 million on a $17 million budget. Now, that's obviously pretty good. You know, they, they made up quite a bit of money. But it actually kind of comparatively made similarly, like, not a lot, but still kind of like a significant amount, like, just as Tron Legacy did. Tron Legacy made $400 million on a $170 million budget, which absolutely did not break even for what I'm going to say in a second. Because like I just said, Disney took a big swing on this movie. First of all, Walt Disney produced Tron and Tron Legacy, but Buena Vista, which was like a, a, like a branch company under Disney for the longest time where they would release kind of their like, not second string, but just not their main Disney properties. So Buena Vista distributed the first Tron. Walt Disney Studios Motion Pictures distributed the second Tron. You have the whole castle intro, you have this gridified, this digitized castle intro. This is a Disney movie right? This is a Disney movie. On the poster, just above Tron Legacy, the title, you see Disney. They are marketing this as a Disney product. Moreover, and no, I don't know if anybody knew this, or if anybody managed to get down to Disney World around when this movie came out, they had monorails advertising Tron. They have rides. There's a ride at Disney World Shanghai, I think. 
hold on. I, I think, think there's like yeah, the light cycles, right? Yeah. Yeah, there's like a light cycle ride, which is fucking sick. Yeah, they have a light cycle power run at Disney Shanghai. They have uh they they have yeah, they have a monorail called the Toronto Rail. And they had a bunch of shows based around Tron. This was something that they really wanted to prop up their kind of like IP identity. It didn't work, obviously. Since Tron Legacy came out, the the animated TV show with Elijah Wood came out, which I don't even remember what that show is called. Uh, Uprising. I believe, yeah. Thank you, Tron Uprising. And in the news, Morbius star Jared Leto is going to be <laughs> is going to star in Tron Three, or I think it's called Tron Ares. And it's kind of crazy too when you, when you think about it in con- the context of Joseph Kaczynski decided to go to Paramount and make Top Gun Maverick with Tom Cruise. Meanwhile, Disney had the money, and Joseph Kaczynski was fucking hell-bent on making a third movie, and they just never did it. Yeah. It left such a bad taste in their mouth that this movie didn't blow up. On this movie's poster, it says, In Disney Digital 3D, Real D 3D, and IMAX 3D. They shot, this, they shot a lot of this film purely on 3D, which is actually pretty crazy because, like, I mean, other than Avatar, really no other film was doing that at the time, around yeah. like the end of the aughts, beginning of the teens. Not to mention, I actually cannot believe I never noticed this, that a lot of this film was shot on IMAX. Or it, it was, I'm not sure if it was shot on IMAX or if it was or like it's blown open up map. to IMAX. Yeah. yeah, it's open map because the scenes on, Disney, on the Disney Plus transfer when it opens up to 16 by 9 from 21 by 9, I'm like, I, t- I literally thought to myself, how have I never noticed this before? <laughs> and then looking it up, they actually advertised this as being an IMAX. Like this was on IMAX screens. It certainly worked on me, me and my family, because that was like one of the big, because compared to like Avatar, obviously, which was another big expanded aspect ratio film, like that was a pretty novel concept at the time. I think mm. my, you know, my father might have seen The Dark Knight, so he was already familiar with the way, you know, the aspect ratio changed. But for me, it was like novel at like nine years old. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something I kind of, I definitely envy your experience, because I think <laughs> if I had been, I would have been like 11 or something when this movie came out, this would have just, I would have like combusted out of this. <laughs> I mean, I, I still kind of do every single time I watch this. I love this movie so much. But it's a little bit of background about Tron Legacy. This is a film. This is Joseph Kaczynski's, basically his directorial debut. Actually, if anybody, this is a very, this is an interesting tidbit about his work. He directed the Starry Night commercial for Halo 3. Oh, yeah. I think that, I would, that must have been a huge help for his uh, yes, for the tech yes, demo. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So if you, yeah, if anybody knows about that one, you know, he's a, he's an architecture student, but he decided to make it big with filmmaking. He actually contracted a lot of his buddies from architecture school to do the design of a lot of the sets on Tron Legacy because he, he was committed to doing a lot of the sets practically. The entire interior of Kevin Flynn's little stronghold is done practically. And I think a lot of the like downtown grid areas are look like they're done practically too, especially like the front of Flynn's arcade in the grid. It looks like it's all practical. But Joseph Kaczynski, he is how old is he? He's 36 when this film is released. You know, that is not old by many by many like directorial metrics. He is given this big budget and and he and screenwriters Edward Kitsis and Adam Horowitz just they kind of conceive this very meditative emotionally kind of poignant love letter to the digital world somehow I don't know it's 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 so hard to kind of like properly encapsulate the thoughts that I think go into conceiving a film of this scale even though in hindsight you know when you compare it to a lot of the films of its time it doesn't even seem like that grand in scale at all. Just its shape as a legacy sequel, which obviously were, I think, just beginning to get popular around the same time. And then eventually they became their own kind of mini genre. We're talking about Force Awakens bringing back the original cast. You have the new Indiana Jones that's coming out. So you have obviously this kind of bracketed time period where we're bringing back older stars. And Jeff Bridges was kind mm-hmm. of on the vanguard coming back as Kevin Flynn, who in and of himself is a cult figure not only in the film but in real life itself. We're not talking about a Luke Skywalker kind of stature of character. This is someone who is very mm-hmm. self-contained to the original world, but we'll get to that in a bit. If we want to start off with another author that I think is equally important to this discussion, the film is memorable because of their contribution, Daft Punk, which I think lends mm-hmm. a really kind of interesting postmodern uh, dimension to the movie in general. Obviously, 
I don't want to give the whole skinny on Daft Punk's background. It's, it's a movie pod, not a music pod, but they're kind of mythology. I think it's just really, first of all, it's just perfect. Kozinski knew he was going for it. But I think what we can start with is that they were contacted, I think, before they even shot like a single frame or when the film was in pre-production. So they had to get started on the music right away. They were already consulting with the directors and the producers on how to write the music. And Guy Manuel de Homem Cristo, I believe he said that the movie itself was cut to the music. And he makes specific mention that, you know, usually the composer comes in at the end and they film to the image. This was very mm-hmm. much a marriage that occurred at the same time. There was a kind of symbiotic relationship that the music and the film enjoyed. So in my mind, I'm pretty sure synesthesia is an actual chief kind of aesthetic concern, aside from the aesthetic dimension that Kaczynski was bringing to the film. But just to talk about Daft Punk in particular, because I know postmodern is a big P word that we can throw into these discussions and then not give any mind to. But Daft Punk naturally... Their brand is very famous for being two people who just wear helmets all the time. We know their real name. That's not really of concern. But the notion of stripping away the face and the artifice of just the kind of you know cult of charisma that surrounds celebrity, being able to work with that, and then take it to its kind of logical endpoint, right, where they play themselves or fictional versions of themselves in a movie they scored. It's a really odd mm-hmm. kind of jumbling of you know modern myths mm-hmm. that we have around celebrity, and I think. With the way this film tackles transhumanism and this kind of transcending of the human barriers and whatnot, I think Daft Punk, I mean, the most, not even just ironic, but, you know, the most purest way, Daft Punk is the perfect artist you could have picked, for better or worse, for a film about, you know, cyborgism and, you know, just transcending those kind of barriers. But Mm -hmm. I'm curious, do you have any particular thoughts you want to get off on the Daft Punk soundtrack? Because this is coming from someone, I own the record on vinyl. I'm already a pretty big Daft Punk fan myself, so it's kind of interesting whenever I just ask people about what they think about their soundtrack and what their efforts are, yeah. Of the Daft Punk records I have, I don't have the Tron Legacy soundtrack. I probably should get it. One thing I think that we're kind of not mentioning is before any character speaks, it's, a, it's, the, it's the score. Yeah. You know, it's the track called The Grid where you have this kind of like magical chime in and then it goes into the really deep, like pulse-like beat where it's like dun 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 dun, and then and then Jeff Bridges comes on voiceover and says the grid, right? It's very and much obviously the first like, character in a way, right? Yeah, 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 it is. It really is. And and I think it was our episode on Prince of Darkness where we talked about a review by Silent Dawn uh, on Letterbox where he said the Carpenter score is very much wed to the pulse of the film, and it's interesting in this case where you like you said you have a film that's in the editing room, it's wed to the pulse of the music. You know, there are yeah. scenes like the entire club sequence when you go from the end of line club. So you go from the club soundtrack to DeRest to end of line. The end of line is the one where it's like they're, they're plummeting down the elevator shaft. Yeah. And it's that really like that really deep and like hard hitting score. You know, you have this sequence of, of sounds. You have the sequence of compositions that you can really much tell, and, and this is, I think, the, the basis of my statement is that the cinematic language feels like it is not so much subordinate, but it is actively trying to pair itself with the score. Yeah. Score is not meant so much as this kind of ambivalent ambiance as it is, you know, like the easy way out is just to say, oh, the score is a character, but the score is as important as the code in the grid right like the score is the code of this movie it's the root code of the emotional kind of like complexity and like what it is that keeps this synesthetic experience going in an otherwise for some people dry emotional experience right the carpenter comparison i think is dead on i think Def punk even mentioned when they were younger the carpenter was a huge influence i mean they loved watching the films but like you mentioned i think you know, that's a really salient comparison because they're sort of, I think, it's inspired by the work he did. Not, not mm-hmm. necessarily, you know, minimalist scores. I think it's, you know, it's a stretch to say Carpenter is necessarily married to that idea. But ne- like the pulse of the film, I think you're dead on with that. And if there's one thing I could also say, you talked about the way the percussion works. It's kind of created a heartbeat. Uh, this is an interesting exercise because if people are familiar with Daft Punk's work, their name was kind of an epithet given to them because of their aggressive sampling. A lot of people thought it was a little aggr- like a haphazard, maybe a little chaotic, and they kind of just adopted in this kind of ironic joke. And now maybe the meanings got lost with time. I'm not sure if anyone out there is a Daft Punk expert, but other than that, you know, this film requires a really thorough dedication to you know, the, the use of orchestra, use of strings. It's, I think the first kind of idea they had is that we can't just do this on a drum machine. You know, we can't rely on the basics mm-hmm. for this film. We really need to kind of dig deep into our bag. 
Mm-hmm. And it really shows. I think there's a really personal kind of touch to the film because they are, they're obviously fans of the original. So to, for them to be able to introduce a new kind of dimension to the film, I'm pretty sure the original is almost without score for most of the time, unless I'm misremembering. Mm-hmm. But yes, there's a whole other dimension that kind of plays into legacy. So I think that's an interesting kind of thing we should introduce at the start, or at least this kind of idea of reconstituting Daft Punk mm-hmm. and Tron Legacy itself. And Yeah, and it's so cool, but you have tracks on this score like the really popular derezd which happens during the fight at the top of the end of line club which is a, like a wholly digital sounding track and it's this it's this glossy kind of paint job of music and then you have a track like a dot um i think it's called the Daggio for tron yeah where it like laments the loss of tron to this kind of this fascist computer program crusade yeah. led by clue yeah exactly and it's it's amazing because like you just said you know daft punk was probably when thinking about it they said you know we can't just do this on a drum machine and yet they they balance these two ends of a musical spectrum in a way where they can have a track like derez which is like very much this pulse pounding action sequence track and then they have stuff like sea of simulation where it's just they're on that though. I think it's called like a solar sailor. Yeah. And they're just they're just you know it's it's Kevin and and Sam talking about what's happening in the real world and it's this it's it's so moving it's so slow it's so serene and it's it's just like either the range is really I think what I'm trying to what I'm trying to get at the range is just so so incredible it's really just mesmerizing because sometimes you even. I found on some watches of this film, I tune out the dialogue and I just tune into the music. Kind of like a, almost like a silent film. I think it's very effective yeah. at conveying you know, basic visual information in that regard. Yeah. I almost think, I would almost, I think I almost would want to try watching this as a silent film. I think that's my exercise next time I watch this. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to like, I'll turn on the soundtrack and I'll listen to it that way. Yeah. But yeah, I think that's really interesting. But yeah, I, I think this was like a big thing to get out of the way first because I think everybody talks about like we even yeah. we didn't even mention like basically one of the biggest criticisms of this movie or at least one of the kind of quote unquote playful jabs is that it's just a it's a two hour long Daft Punk music video which is a, it, it's a silly thing to say it's not a two hour <laughs> long Daft Punk music video but it, it is in a way the film has had a reputation for just being this vehicle for Daft Punk to release new music because outside of I think this was their second last album, so to speak. Yeah. If we're including this as an album, they did Random Access Memories in 2013, and they've since disbanded. Like they've, they've since broken Just up. They've not released any other music. That's it. Yeah. Which is crazy. You know, this is if if you plot the trajectory of their releases, they did stuff. They did like they did Discovery. They did Robot Rock. They did Alive 2007, which is a great album. Yeah. They did this. And then they did random access memories. So, you know, this is their this is this is one of the biggest kind of like brushstrokes on their career. It sort of it belongs to them, but it also kind of belongs to this movie. If there's one thing maybe we want to introduce to the discussion, and we're talking so much about I guess postmodernism competing truths, and well, you mentioned the criticism people had about the score. We can talk more about features and not bugs, but Here's one mm. thing we can talk about in terms of the CGI. Obviously, we mentioned this was supposed to be a, a grand kind of, I don't want to say it's reduced entirely to a tech demo reel, but this was supposed to be like a, you know, multi-level IP for Disney. So this was very it was much... supposed to be cutting edge. Yeah. Like they wanted it, was it to a, be cutting edge, right? Yeah, it was a cutting edge showcase for their entire kind of in-house production. We're talking about you know, VFX. We're talking about its ability to be kind of folded into rides, like Eric mentioned, but... Let's talk about something that became super commonplace right after. I mean, even in the same kind of year after, you had Captain America kind of experimenting with similar de-aging technology. They had like a skinnier Chris Evans, so it was like his head superimposed on someone else's body and also messing with that. But we had Jeff Bridges in this film play both Kevin Flynn and the quote-unquote younger version of himself and his clone clue, codified likeness utility. And... This was one of like those watershed moments in I think CGI where they were trying completely to frame a performance and have CGI like paint over it. You obviously had Gollum come out way earlier, King Kong. It's not new that mocap was introduced, but to de-age an actor, I think that was a more ambitious kind of undertaking. Well, I think that's too much to say. Gollum is definitely a complex visual effect, but to kind of get the emotional or the human kind of resemblance with the uncanny valley, that was the challenge. And I really like the way you put it. 
if you want to take the floor, go ahead. But the notion that it might be a feature, not a bug of what the film is trying to get across. Yeah. Well, it definitely is a feature, not a bug. And it amazes me that people were so put off by the superficial austerity of Clue's likeness. They were like, oh, it looks too weird. It's Uncanny Valley. Like, it looks, meh, we don't like it. They didn't once think about whether or not that could somehow be interpreted as a feature and not a bug. And what I, you know, we, we use that term all the time, a feature, not a bug. And really, I don't think it's ever had an, any apt usage better than this. It, this is quite literally a feature of the grid. It's not a bug. First of all, he's a foil for Kevin in a very literal way. There's, you know, you wrote in our notes, there's this really amazing scene in a flashback. And I do, aesthetically, I love the flashbacks because they're shown on this more rudimentary video yeah. feed. Another kind of thing that somehow made me think of Prince of Darkness. But they, I think they use video in a very, like, completely different way. But they nevertheless find this really interesting aesthetic way of showing a different time, but using the kind of the looming era of the digital kind of age to define that. But with Clue, Kevin puts his hands on the floor of this like newly minted grid. There's absolutely nothing except for tiles as far as the eye could see. And this forward slash pain comes up and he punches in a few numbers and Clue appears out of the mirror. This is basically just if we're, if we're going to introduce religion into this, because this film is, I think, very deeply religious and spiritual, or at least in the way that's kind of recodifying religious myths, yeah. you have God creating man in his own image, quite literally. But the thing that happens is you have this digital entity in Clue that is unable to age. He is this ageless kind of amorphous figure that is made in the image of his creator, but does not have the same sort of mortality as he does. So... As Kevin, you know, goes into exile after raging against Clue. So we, what we should say is in one flashback, it is shown that Clue betrays Kevin because Kevin is accepting of this new anomaly in their grid, in their program called the ISOs, the isomorphic algorithms. It's basically, it's this spontaneous kind of manifestation of code within the grid that has the ability to kind of recodify the grid in a way that they, they don't suffer like the consequences of deresolution, which is basically death for a program in the grid. You know, in the scenes during the, the disc wars, when, when the discs shred through programs, they, they combust or they kind of explode into these mini little, they, they basically explode into bits. Yeah. Right? Like these, these tiny little cubes. It's almost like this, little, like this Lego effect. There are a lot of cute little programmer jokes in the movie at large. Yeah. yeah. And later on in the film, it's shown that after Korra gets one of her arms severed off, she has the ability to reconstitute it. She, she, can, she can pull code basically out of thin air, almost in the same way that Kevin can do, where he just kind of like manifests a, you know, a command log on the side of the elevator window, yeah. and he can like stop something quite easily. There's this intuitive way that they're trying to make the grid more flexible and accepting of this spontaneous existence. But for Clue, Clue was created at a time in Flynn's life, and he explains this where he didn't understand the idea of like man, like you know spontaneous manifestation and he just couldn't accept that sort of thing and clue being created in that likeness does not have the ability of developing the capacity to accept it so he sees it as disorder and he sees it as chaos he sees it as a blemish that needs to be covered up which is why he betrays kevin flynn and drives him into hiding. In the meantime, you know, in this, at the same time, he also uh, over, like, incapacitates Tron, which is Bruce Boxleitner's character that's a carryover from the first one. Tron is a pro uh, like a security program that's, uh, that helps out users on the grid, um, but Clue kind of you know, brainwashes him and turns him into Rinsler. And Clue's uncanniness, you know, being a feature, not a bug, likens him more to this abominable creation worthy of being cast out of heaven, right? He is this archangel, so to speak. Yeah. And he's, he's cursed from birth to not age, to not replicate that kind of facet of humanity. And, and through that, he wants to usher in this undying era of digital technology, one that he has figured out how to harness and send into the real world through this like manifested portal now that Sam has come into the grid after Clue kind of beckoned him through the, using the pager that his father had. They don't actually even explain how Kevin has a pager inside the grid, but I think it's just really great that of all the things he brought, he brought a pager. <laughs> 
this is, you know, it's glossy, it's austere, he looks creepy, and he looks creepy for a reason, you know? I think it would actually be a lesser of a character if, if he had somehow more humane and, you know, human-like intricacies of his, like, features and stuff. Because it's the fact that when you look at him, he looks like he's wearing a rubber mask. Yeah. Right? It, it, looks, it looks scary, and it looks creepy. And I think also that... So somehow Jeff Bridges doesn't get talked about enough doing the work in this film because he actually does a really great job as both Kevin Flynn being this like post Big Lebowski version of a Jeff Bridges <laughs> character where he says stuff like radical man and like let's split but then also you know as Clue as this you know he's he's hell bent not so much on world domination he truly wants to be recognized by his father yeah and just the proximity to humanness I mean I think that's what makes the a lot of your depiction of or at least your interpretation clue will hinge on the final shot he has in the film. Mm-hmm. It's when they're going through the portal at the end of the film and Clue's desperately reaching towards it in an attempt to kind of transcend this kind of flesh and become human in a funny way, right? Because it's sort of, sort of the project of the digital world that we have ourselves, right? We're trying to... I'm not going to try and bring an overt reference to maybe meta or VR. God knows it's not an ideal kind of simulacra that we want to go into, but obviously... When we talk about this philosophical notion of transcending the human flesh, we try to go to the digital world, and obviously that's flipped on its head for Clue, right? And as he's reaching into the portal, that's when the actual CGI kind of puppet or, you know, construction of his face is at its, at its kind of breaking point, right? There's almost a breakdown mm-hmm. in the way he starts yelling, and there's this kind of, there's a real tragedy for me, honestly, when I watch the film and I kind of see this, this futile attempt to do so on behalf of Clue, and I think that's why the CGI works for me so much, and I, I, I can understand why it's a huge turnoff for a lot of people, but I think as the movie goes on, there's like perfect approximations of de-aged technology. You have uh, what the Avengers movies, they were de-aging, I think, well, well, they, Michael they, Douglas, they, Michael they Douglas, had, yeah. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah then and, and, and then they had, the, just a few years before, they had to age up Brad Pitt in the, the Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And I think even in, in Benjamin Button, and even Blade Runner 2049, for what it's worth, this idea of using CGI to de-age or age a person, there is a, a treatment of it as not necessarily grotesque, but something that is against nature and something that just creates in, kind of internal contradiction, I guess. Maybe not in the case of Benjamin Button. I think that's a kind of different kind of case study altogether. But with Blade Runner 2049, this kind of blatant attempt to reconstruct, you know, a past version of a character or a legacy character, and it's treated as this kind of you know, poor attempt. I think that was the right direction to go. You obviously mm-hmm. have just stuff like the Mandalorian coming out of this, obviously kind of puppeteering the dead legacy of mm-hmm. a character. So I think when you see Kevin in this film for the first time compared to Clue, it's kind of old, rugged, bearded man. I think Rian Johnson also had a great approach in The Last Jedi, framing Luke that way. You're not exactly, mm-hmm. you know, this, you know, towering Arthurian figure that you expect. I think they both approach in this very austere way. And I think that's why the CGI works for me. The relationship works mm-hmm. for me. It's just really great to see in a sci-fi we've literally just had a renewed discussion of, of cgi de-aging with the irishman a few years ago yeah where it's you know the, the people that that kind of cry uncanny valley <clears throat> or these people that are holding on to the verisimilitude of cgi and its ability to like reimagine the appearance of an actor into their younger version these people that cling to verisimilitude and what i mean by verisimilitude is the proximity to the appearance of real life you have something like in way of water, it's a very verisimilitude-based approach to CGI because James Cameron relies and he like strives for photorealism. He wants it to look real. But this idea that all CGI has to replicate the realist-looking image is, is completely false. You know, even in the context of the Irishman, I think that the fact that there is this uncanniness to their CGI exteriors is very much a feature, not a bug of that story. This isn't an episode about the Irishman as much as I think we, we could talk about that movie because that's a fantastic <laughs> yeah. movie. But with this one, you know, Clue is meant to look weird. Clue is meant to be this kind of, that he is a usurper of the grid. He is, he is, you know, he is Lucifer. He is the archangel. He is this fallen son who has cast a shadow over himself and rages against his father, who lives in his own heaven on the outskirts of the known world. To, to incur, or to kind of like, to use the Spy Kids quote, do you think God sits in his heaven because he's scared of what he's created <laughs> sort of thing? Yeah. Why, you know, Kevin says that he spent years fighting against Clue after Sam says, you know, why don't you fight him? And he said that fighting him only fueled his resistance. So Kevin kind of just 
exiled himself to the outskirts, to the outlands, as it's called. And he teaches Korah, who is angled as being one of his many children. You know, it wasn't until I actually read this piece that you sent me by um, Olivia Ephthemiu about how, you know, in this movie, Kevin very much has three kids. He has Clue, he has Sam, and he has Cora. Clue is actually his technical first child, which makes it even more because interesting because he's this like forgotten first child. He literally is Lucifer, right? Yeah. He is Satan. And then you have Sam, who is initially angled as the prodigal son. He is the prodigal son that, you know, somehow just retains all of the mastery of, you know, digital spaces that his father has. He knows all the code to write into the into the console that's in the basement of the arcade to get into the grid. He's, he knows what he's doing. And when he comes back, you know, he's immediately met with hostility because they understand him as being outworld, outworlder. He's a, he's a user. He somehow manifests human blood in the digital context of the grid, you know, and it's Tron under the, you know, in the, under the identity of Rinsler that recognizes this. And then you have Korra, who's so interesting because Korra is this kind of, immaculate conception i'm thinking phantom menace now because yeah. i just watched no, it a I couple think, days I think that's ago right on, yeah. she is this somehow divine intention that is beyond the divine reach of kevin flynn kevin flynn may be the creator of the grid but it somehow spontaneously acted beyond his own control and created something that he himself doesn't necessarily understand it's crazy because if you think about it in the context of kevin flynn being the god of the grid which he is he looks like God, just like you said, like about Luke Skywalker and Last Jedi. They wear gray robes. They have this, you know, they, they live this very kind of like solemn life. They have long gray hair. He, he looks the part. This is what he is about. He himself was not the master of this immaculate being coming into the world, right? It's the digital frontier has moved beyond even Kevin Flynn's own understanding. Which is so cool. Like, that's so fucking cool, man. I mean, even on that topic, and I don't mean to kind of break down the wall entirely here, but you talk about the kind of religious proximity of it. And even this core principle, core operating principle that Kevin has, the notion that it's amazing how productive doing nothing can be. Even when they're waiting for the solar sail, there's this kind of serendipitous moment where he's just waiting and the answer kind of comes to it, right? But to embody that kind of spiritual objectivity, right? I mean, being so detached from the world at large that you no longer feel those sensations of fear, pain, that is very religious kind of notion that they're drawing from kind of Buddhist texts and whatnot. But removing oneself from the equation, I think is such a wonderful kind of underlying principle for the characters in this film. And I think one I want to bring up, I mean, you obviously have Korra. You talked, you brought up Immaculate Conception. You have someone who's very selflessly kind of giving themselves away for the cause at the end when she kind of turns herself into Rinsler, right? There's no need to kind of goad her into it or course or anything like that it's just something that she's able to do on a whim right uh you mm. have kevin at the end who sacrifices himself so that sam and cora can escape the grid and i mean it's interesting right because when he reintegrates himself he kind of takes the whole grid with him but it's not like the actual plane is destroyed you have the sea of simulation everything kind of remains but it does showcase his relationship to the rest of the world in a funny way that their lives their lives are all linked or they're kind of they're part of one kind of grand whole so it's interesting when Korra leaves, being one of the Isles, right? Something that's not under, within his kind of divine control, and she's able to enjoy the real, so to speak. If that makes any sense, that, or she's not reintegrated, I think that's an interesting kind of feature of the plot. But mm-hmm. if there's one thing I could bring up, that's probably Rinsler. Because at the very end, that is the kind of selfless sacrifice he has to make when, you know, you know I fight for the users, and he takes out Clue with him. And even though it's so a bit cool. fruitless, and Clue kind of takes his light jet, you know, removing oneself from the equation... One thing I wanted to talk about is maybe just the lightness. I know there's a lot of mini tangents in this. Bear with me. But you obviously have a design that kind of... There's a departure from the original where they were cone-shaped. That comes from Olivia Mithu. She kind of notes that they were kind of two-dimensional, top-down models of a pyramid, right? Kind of representing mm-hmm. this ascension or spiritual ascension. Whether that's deliberate or not, I don't think that's the point she's making. It's just a kind of subconscious metaphor that it's made for, right? And when you have this film, the design's all completely shifted. You have a kind of loading screen, this kind of the perpetual beach ball clockwise kind of design, right? And you get this idea of spiritual rebirth is more so pointing towards that, right? And when you have a character like Rinsler, who when he first, he's not a natural dual wielder. So I thought it was really interesting when he's kind of fighting against the coup d'etat. And there's a very deliberate sharp holding to this and he's kind of in conflict with himself, right? There's this kind of very blatant 
a use of the signifiers to suggest a soul in conflict with himself. And obviously that's reconciled when he removes himself so-called from the so-called equation at the end. And even when he falls into the sea, right, there's this kind of surrender to his death. His lights kind of change from orange to white. It's kind of very basic visual storytelling, but I think to kind of imbue that spirituality into a character, he kind of mumbles in corrupted code. There's just a lot unique to his character. And I think he's a kind of maybe not as discussed part as Kevin and Cora in this kind of spiritual dimension of the film. If maybe you have any thoughts on that, or even Sam, I guess, if you want to talk about that. Well, Tron is interesting, too, because Tron's one of the only characters that actually comes over from the first film. You know, as I said before, Bruce, Bruce Boxleitner, who plays Alan Bradley, he's a, an executive consultant on NCOM. NCOM is the company that Kevin Flynn kind of like brought from the ground up in the first film, or at least took over at the end of the first film, I should say. He didn't actually bring it up. He kind of led his own little coup d'etat against, uh, <laughs> against NCOM in the first one. But anyways, Kevin Flynn at the end of the first movie is like the CEO of NCOM. Alan Bradley is working for him. And in this film, Alan Bradley is basically the only guy on the NCOM board that isn't a gigantic asshole. You know, you have Killian Murphy in this like unaccredited cameo appearance, appearance as Dillinger's son from the first film. His name is Edward Dillinger. He's this kind of, he's this Silicon Valley like schmuck who just is able to, you know, type in a bunch of code to to stop the mass kind of exodus of their of their secure os12 operating system across the and web he, for he's free which is ubuntu which is like the most like in-depth kind of programmer kind of os you could use for something like that i thought it was really cheeky yeah, yeah. jeffrey nordling plays richard mackey i love the line where so bruce boxleitner uh, playing alan bradley says you know what did we do uh for for ncom os12 and uh, bradley <laughs> just says oh we put a 12 on the box you know, it's this very conceited effort of making or concentrated effort of making, you know, this corporate capitalist ascension of the digital world just completely fucked up. You know, like these people, these people have no ambition of actually pursuing a digital frontier in any shred of capacity as Kevin Flynn did and NCOM is suffering. The digital spaces of the real world are suffering, that sort of thing. But what's so fascinating too is that, you know, Bruce Boxleitner Boxleitner actually does the dialogue of Rinsler, so I'm yeah. almost wondering if he does like the the kind of like broken grumbles and like these kind of like these kind of like you know he, he sounds like an animal, yeah. right? Like he's really interesting. Um, it should it should be said that Anus Chirfa uh, is a stunt actor who did the physical appearance of Rinsler, but Tron is yeah so interesting. He's this leftover element of the old grid, so to speak. You know, he existed in the first Tron, in the first computer simulation, or this first computer program, and he's come over to this new one to help Kevin Flynn. I love, I don't know if you mentioned this yet, but I love the line of, I dreamt of Tron. Yeah. I dreamt of Tron. What a fucking line, right? Like, that's like one of the first lines that Kevin Flynn says, and he says it to Korra. Yeah, I mean, just adding dream logic to the grid. I don't mean to cut you off too much, but obviously you have... No, no. You have sweet dreams. I mean, we can talk about the arcade scene initially when Mm -hmm. they go into the grid. There's, like you mentioned, there's kind of blunt mention of separate worlds. I think it's some separate ways, worlds apart by Journey. It's very on the nose kind of lyrics if you've seen the film. And I I like the way it reconfigures a kind of a love song between, I guess, two lovers into one of father and son, which I thought was always really cool, but... I think so, too. It's, fu- it's fun if you think of it as a, a memento left behind by Kevin Flynn, yeah. because obviously he was the owner of the arcade, so he yeah. would, it was, it's his playlist, so he's leaving it behind. It's, it's just fun, this little orchestrated moment of catharsis. But yeah, continue. I Just to help you maybe, you know, uh, add on to your point, but obviously the Eurythmic Sweet Dreams Needle Drop, this notion that even the grid is constructed as kind of dream logic in the film itself. Not to say that you can't dream in the grid. You mentioned Kevin already does that. And there's the kind of video feed shots of kind of like flashbacks, right, that he has with Sam as a young child. And even when he's awake at at the very climax, there's also a similar kind of flashback that plays and he remembers his childhood again. And I'm not Mm -hmm. sure how much we can get into that. I'm sure you maybe have a couple more thoughts on it. Maybe one thing I'll also add into the fire here is Hitostero's The Poor Image, we already talked about the way death is considered in the grid. It's considered de-resolution. Is this kind of loss of definition mm-hmm. of character, right? And this kind of return to oneness. It's, it's, you're kind of mm-hmm. taking what we consider to be kind of a this kind of technological apparatus and reimbuing it with kind of mythological significance, right? A return to the oneness. But mm-hmm. talk about de-resolution. The video feed is really interesting in that because we talked about that as well in the Prince of Darkness episode. I'm actually surprised how much similarities are between the two movies now that i think about it but mm-hmm. it's such an odd way of d- distilling a dream 
into a simulacra, yeah. if that makes sense, right? I, I think it's, yeah. it's a really cool exercise to have. I dreamt of Tron. I mean, that's a mic drop. I dreamt right? of Tron. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's actually incredible. You know, like, and, and Jeff Bridges' performance is just full of this, uh, of these just like oneers. You know, he says stuff like, let's split, man. Or he says stuff like, you're, you're messing with my Zen thing, yeah, that's man. That's it, thing, you know, man. I, I said this earlier, you know, this is a post-Big Lebowski Jeff Bridges, this guy who's, who's speaking in this hippie register. But in this movie, he is, he is this dad who has been without his child, so to speak, for 20 years. And he has to kind of like take on the father role once more. One that's like not so much like the teacher philosopher that he is to Cora, but somebody who's like tender and has the ability to kind of talk to Sam. I really love the scene on the Solar Sailor. I love, I love the way that they just, they just are able to, you know, you, ha- you say you have the serendipitous moment. It, it just really does feel like this moment out of time where nothing else matters besides the conversation, like catching up between two, like a father and son that haven't seen each other in a long time. I, I was just thinking about the final scene where Clue tries to get into the portal and then he's like cast into reintegration. I do just want to like explain reintegration. Earlier in the film, Sam says, you know, why doesn't, why doesn't Kevin just destroy Clue? And Cora says, well, he could, but it would kill him. And what she means by that is the only way that, because, because Clue is, a, is kind of this like mirror program cast from Kevin's own likeness, the only way that he could destroy Clue is to reintegrate him into his own self and that, thus, you know, destroying him. You know, you have this whole idea of like id versus ego, this super ego, like destroying itself. Yeah. And it, what's really amazing is in the shot where the portal is at the end of this slender bridge. And Clue has made it to the other side of the bridge after it's broken. He's trying to get into the portal. And there's this wide shot of Kevin at the mouth of the bridge looking on, you know, crying and in joy that he's his son and Cora are getting out. And it's this deep focus. You see him in the background and then Clue rises in the yeah. foreground of the frame and the focus yeah. immediately racks. There are some amazing rack focuses in this movie. You know, the one scene during the disc wars where you have Sam framed through the interior hole in the disc and they rack focus through that. Yeah. One thing I didn't know, this was shot on Sony digital cameras. It's a really good shot on Sony cameras. Filmmaking, I think, too. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And and, and this film, so Avatar was shot on Sony F950s. This was shot on Sony F35s, which I just learned. And Kozinski actually wanted this because it better mimics the 35mm sensor of film cameras. You really do get this idea of 35mm photography, especially in the way that he handles depth of field, right? Like there's so many instances where he's playing with rack focus, he's, he wants things in the background and the foreground to kind of interact within the frame, so to speak. I think it's, a, I, I don't think a lot of people talk about how kind of adept it is in its, in its photography enough, because I think it's really, really amazing. I think even one thing I'll speak to, and you talk about this kind of tension between, I mean, just technology and myth. This is another gigantic reach I have. I use it in my Speed Racer video as well. But something about these kind of sports, not even sports, the kind of directed movies, but, you know, ones that focus focus a lot on kinesthetics and movement. I always Mm -hmm. kind of go back to the Edward Moybridge shot of the horse. We didn't get to talk about it enough in Nope, but I'll bring it back here for this movie of all things because there's the, the, obviously the slow motion shot. You have this very telephoto lens effect on Sam. Very slow motion run in profile before he jumps into a bike that kind of reintegrates into his yeah. own being, the design of it, right? It's very, I mean, it's a very unique look at kind of transhumanism. Again, this is kind of, very, you know, full kind of coping with cyborg identity, right? It's this kind of moment of acceptance because like, now this I can do. You know, it's very much this, you know, integration of the being, you know, with what you can do in the grid. It's kind of perfect marriage, right? And I think we talk about perfect marriages, and maybe you have a point on this to make, but one of my favorite cuts in the film, if we're talking about cinematography, well, not even cut, it's more of a parallel in the text of it, but when Kevin, you see him on a TV screen, this is already connoting, you know, the scene in like postmodernism where there are competing truths, all these TVs are kind of beaming you know, mm. different feeds and different thoughts about in this Kevin. in this kind of like void, right? Like yeah. at the beginning where all these TVs are just kind of in limbo, you know, you can almost like you can almost kind of see it as being like this barren grid, but it's very much just like it's it's like digital space, right? Yeah, it's like this mini matrix of all things, you know? Yeah. Maybe maybe that's the loaded term, you know, in these days, but I will say yeah, it's but in any case, you know, there's this clip of Kevin, he's talking to these techie uppies and he's giving his uh, speech on kind of digital manifest destiny, right? You said he led a coup d'etat against NCOM, right? And for him, the ends are sort of justifying the means at this point in his life, right? It's like, out there is our future. Out there is our destiny. You know, we have this kind of destiny, right. Yep. It's kind of, we have this entitlement to, you know, to the digital age. And very tellingly, 
Clue gives the same speech to his kind of black shirts, the people he's kind of converted from the grid into his personal army. And he says, as they're going into the kind of real world, so to speak, you know, out there is our victory, out there is our destiny. So it's very much this... He just basically says the exact same thing. Yeah, this conflation of fascism with, uh, with tech kind of dominance, right? Which I thought is... Entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship like, the, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. The other thing, too, is that, like, the flashback of Kevin Flynn on the TV screen is, is the DH CGI version. Yeah, so it's literally exactly. just Clue yeah. both times, yeah. right? I, the fact is filtered through this kind of low RSS view that you and I were, like, talking about, right? The, like, it's not even... <laughs> the actual CGI model of Kevin kind of coexisting in real in the real world, so to speak. Like he's not talking with Sam that we've already seen earlier in the film at the beginning. But I mean it's it's such it's clued both times, right? I mean that's a very mm-hmm. simplistic way of putting it, but I it's a great mm-hmm. kind of flourish on it. And if anything, do you have any thoughts, I guess, on how that kind of parallels, I guess, corporate filmmaking or at least the way the direction of blockbuster filmmaking has gone and since? Because you obviously have, you know, this proximity to tech frame this kind of fascist overtaking right you obviously have you know mm-hmm. with the way the vfx uh kind of division is today in the world or the vfx industry either they're overworked uh there's a period of you not being underpaid paid. yeah it's yeah. a terrible kind of situation non-unionized of all things not to say this movie is maybe you know not like you know agnostics and maybe some of the faults in the vfx industry i doubt things have very changed very much over the last few years but the commentary on just how much you know tech we're willing to assimilate to reach our goal right we're talking about Kevin, who is very much stepping away from that and letting Cora kind of take the alignment. There has to be this kind of, again, moment of serendipity that lets us not have to forcefully exert our control over the digital age. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, is mm-hmm. there any thought you have, I guess, in that blockbuster filmmaker, or even the notion of putting a 12 on the box? <laughs> we just put a new number <laughs> well, and we're putting yeah, out a story, you know, right? Yeah. Like, like Clue is, is forever trying to, you know, he, he's, he's edifying his own perfection. You know, he believes in the natural, the so-called natural order of the grid. He believes in order. He believes in control. And this is kind of where the, this, this like the pseudo fascist programming sort of like this program like bleeds into his persona. You know, he becomes this iron fisted tyrant who is going to send his army of, of orange visored, like faceless soldiers into the real world to do his bidding. The other thing, too, is the language of his kind of like iconography. You know, these flying ships that pick up rogue rogue, rogue programs are called rectifiers. Yeah. The only, two out, the only two outcomes for people, it becomes this very kind of Roman Empire-esque thing yeah. where the only two outcomes for rogue programs are rectified or games. And games, they're just meant to fight in this coliseum, like duel to the death where you're meant to die. You know, I think one of my favorite things about Sam when he's introduced to the grid as this kind of prodigal son kind of like spontaneous jazz like character is that he just starts breaking shit to to win games yeah. you know it's when one guy comes flying in he breaks the tie below him and he falls out through it right he has no issue immediately breaking out of the boundaries of the grid for any nobody could actually see me but my hands are flying around <laughs> right now cuz i'm 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 amped but like this is you know that is what sam is and whereas clue you know the first son of kevin he is about order he is about control because that's the type of person kevin was when he created clue yeah right and it's amazing it's just amazing stuff you know i love i love how he's vicious too you know he 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 goes and gets the disc from caster he gives him a drink and then he, they blow up they, they blow it up like he just kills him he's he's kind of ruthless too and i think you know if we want to extrapolate this so if you will across this like larger blockbuster ip filmmaking lens or this this, this scope it's really amazing that Disney made a movie in 2010, which is about, you know, eschewing control <laughs> in favor of chaos. And now, meanwhile, every single one of their films are made in pre-vis, right? Yeah, like made they by have committee. to be perfect yeah. from day one, right? Yeah, exactly. This film was not made in a committee. This film was made through the democratic process of labor of, of a bunch of different people, I think. You know, maybe I'm giving you maybe a bit more credit than it deserves. It is still a <laughs> Disney film. And I'm not going to say that Disney became bad overnight. But, you know, nevertheless, everybody's fingerprints are on this film, whereas new, newer films, you know, in the Disney kind of, in, in the Disney canon, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, yeah. they are meticulously cleaned of any fingerprints. Yeah. They are as glossy and as, un- as austere as Clue is, you know? Maybe that's the most scathing thing I'll say. I'll, I'll stop there. Uh, I mean, I don't even know where to go. I was thinking about bringing in some Disney films, but I don't think it's productive. Man, we haven't we haven't even talked about Caster yet. We haven't talked about Caster. We we haven't even really talked about light cycles or disc wars. We've kind of mentioned them, but like we haven't really talked about the shit that in, in this movie that everybody thinks rules. 
I mean, just on the intentionality of design, I mean, you have a caster you can't miss. Uh, I'm not going to say it's a complete David Bowie impression, but obviously you have that postmodern effect, right? He's very much drawing from this kind of Ziggy Stardust persona. Uh, just a fantastic performance. He eats up every scene that he's in. Yeah. He, has, he has a little cane that fires. He's a cane that kind of fires bullets and stuff. But even the cute little kind of architectural jokes, which is where Kaczynski is coming from. I think even you mentioned the rectifier. Uh, to me, it always looked like two brackets, you know, like something you'd put in a line of code, right? And very much so, yeah. Caster's Club or Zeus's Club, uh, the end of line is this massive forward slash in the skyline of the grid, right? Literally denoting an end of line of code. And even then, like it lights up, it tells Clue that the kind of the trap has been set and Sam and Kevin are at the, at the base and now it's time to come over. It's a really, it's a really great exercise an intentional design but if you want to talk about discourse we kind of discuss how they might be like kind of you know the unconscious signifier for the soul but you also have very much this like you said roman i think that's the best way to go about it you have this kind of discus throwing return to basics it's almost like i'm not even going to say primitive but this kind of formative i guess digital experience mm-hmm. right this is a society that's very much building itself up and advancing i don't know is there anything you want to say about how all this is arranged or at least the society of the grid the games well, and all you, that you yeah. know you you have Clue and you have his uh, his lackey Jarvis, who's actually one of the fi- my favorite characters in the movie, just because he's such a like a sniveling little shit. Your luminary, but, you know, your creator. <laughs> he's so good. He says Clue, <laughs> but if if the disc is like your codified likeness, it is your identity. It's pretty amazing and damnable almost that you have you're you're forced to fight with that. Like that's yeah. your that's the primary weapon of programs on the grid is their disc. You know, they're these kind of like light sword looking things, but there's no guns except for Caster's cane somehow. You know, they 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 fight hand to hand. It's this it's this ritual combat almost. And then you have something like the light bikes. Like what the fuck? Like it's from the first movie. And, like, in the first movie, it's in the context of, like, the arcade game. But in this one, they just kind of kept it. It's so funny, too, because you got to get the idea because Clue is in control of this. He's almost, like, too sentimental for his own good that he keeps these elements of the first kind of iteration of the grid, right? Like, he doesn't know how to... he, He cannot create anything else. That's the big thing. Clue cannot create. He can only destroy. He can only repurpose and destroy, yeah. He, exactly. So like, he keeps light bikes because he doesn't know how to do anything else. You know, they have the light, the the light planes or the yeah, and, and but like the light bikes. I mean, the light bikes are fucking sick. It's the coolest thing ever. You know, you said it too. You have this in profile kind of Moybridge esque shot of the of of the bike materializing underneath him. You know, it goes from this like little stick, which Sam misinterprets as a lightsaber. I love the line. <laughs> What's this? What do I do with this? You know, we didn't even talk about how Garrett Headland talks in this amazing kind of like monotone register that somehow really just works he almost has this like keanu reeves matrix yeah. <laughs> thing going on he, he's this post neo character right but he's somehow he's he, he's a he just has these the tiny little idiosyncrasies which are just really amazing i mean if anything of the, of the of, of the three you know olivia wilde i think it's talked about a lot maybe because people like to talk about how crappy her like haircut is <laughs> but you know even that is that's an effort in androgyny you know yeah. they wanted to make cora kind of androgynous which i think is it's an interesting decision yeah. i don't know if it lands necessarily but you know it's an interesting one so to speak but you have you have all these these moving parts of these characters Right, but yeah, I I don't know if there's really much else to say about like disc wars and light bikes because it's it's the easiest in, it's the easiest like in for the that the film has. It's when it kind of like really just becomes this like action film. Yeah, I think it's a little too late in the episode to bring up something as loaded as this, but I think maybe one thing I'll bring up on Clue's approach to creating the grid. Right, I think it's most most salient when Sam is on his way to downtown and he's using kind of an analog original light bike right this is not something that materializes out of the stick so to speak is this well something you have to you know kind of park something you have to manually drive and even the form of it is that you're kind of in this cockpit so to speak but when you're using the newer iteration of the light bikes right you know specifically made for the film your body's quite literally mapped onto the kind of design you're laid like you know straight up horizontally onto the plane of it and it materializes kind of out of thin air right this kind of odd maybe allegory for digital versus analog i thought it was really interesting at least this kind of approach to both i mean just the different kind of jets the bikes in the movie just the way technology functions in the grid itself and i think kaczynski did a good job putting all that together but if we're kind of close off the episode we could maybe give some mind to the ending if you don't mind 
Yeah, of course. I mean, I, I think that Olivia Wilde's eyes do a lot of heavy lifting and kind of selling her scenes, just that profound naivete that Kevin's talking about, right? And I think that's most present at the end, which is one of my favorite final shots in a film maybe ever. But kind of personal bias aside, you talk about simulating an artificial sun. And what I mean by that is when the portal that uh, the users kind of come into is activated, there's a white light kind of in the distance, right? And Cora even talks about how it mm-hmm. means you know, something better is coming, you know, some, you know, our kind of, our God has arrived and things, a very religious kind of intonation to what she's saying, right? And then mm-hmm. she even imagined what, what does a real sunset look like? And is there anything I guess you want to say about the way the grid is oh, laid out? Yeah. Yeah. There's no sun in the grid. It's yeah. always thundering and lightning. Like there's rain too. It, it's, it's, it's a, it's a world without sun. The, the, the inability to like, like experience this natural light. And I didn't really like clue in. And then like the final shot is just all the more interesting because she is completely at peace and like she's experiencing this like sublime sensation for the first time, right? Yeah. Like she's, she like yearned for the, for the sun, especially, you know, especially when Sam mentions that like the sun, the sunrise or the sunset is just the greatest thing ever. Yeah. But no, I think Olivia Wilde does do a lot of really fun acting. I love the way that she, almost like wordlessly just hands over her disc. She hands over her identity and then she goes off to quote, remove herself from the equation, right? Like she cares about being selfless, even though it's her existence that almost matters the most out of the three of them. Right. Yeah. She is kind of the Holy spirit in this way. I think if you wanted to draw the Trinity around the three of the main characters, I love the way that she delivers the line. It's what he wants. When Sam, when Sam realizes that his dad is going to, reintegrate with clue yeah he, he's gonna lose his dad and it, it, it's it's so sad to think about like he only knew he he saw his dad for like two days yeah not even like 24 hours maybe and and he had to kind of just give up that immediately i also love how on the poster you know they actually have the portal shot but in a post matrix you know we talk about post matrix it's also kind of post star wars because it does kind of look like the first star wars yeah, the, uh poster the classic kind of pose of the hero with the girl by him and then kind of yeah like the, the hands yeah. up it, it's kind of just like it, it's very meticulously slotting itself in this like sci-fi lineage right yeah. but i mean that's kind of an aside you know with the ending itself the sun has to kind of what what's really amazing too is that kevin is not passing off any sins onto his on his children he is reintegrating he is like taking it upon himself to kind of right his own wrong i think in another version of this film there's a way in which clue kills kills kevin and then is able to kind of like you know it, it falls to sam and to core but in this version of the film the, the responsibility relies wholly on kevin to kind of like you know do away with this this virus this this parasitic line of code that is just you know the the itch that he can't get to yeah even with final encounters framed right it's, it's jeff bridges having a conversation with himself i think we should make that apparent but obviously his frame is very you know mirror reverse shot shot reverse shot right so i think calling to mind that relationship one last time even the rack focus you mentioned earlier it's a really brilliant kind of marriage of dealing with mm-hmm. your past self is is a great kind of subtextual way of dealing with obviously it's not so much that he's dying for mankind's sins but he's dying for his own sins which i think is a really fun outlook on that kind of formula, yeah. repurposing uh, religious myths. And even on behalf of Sam and Korra, the, or the ethos of doing nothing at the end of the day, right? It's amazing how productive doing nothing could be to have a kind of strength and step back from Kevin killing himself. Because naturally, Korra and Sam could have fought him right there, and Kevin kind of talks him down from that ledge. But yeah, there's, yeah. it's a loaded ending, for sure. And I, I think those are some of the it reasons is. I love it so much, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure I even really thought about it in that way where he's like, he's, he's, he's quite literally dying for his own sins. He is the only person he's truly able to forgive is himself. Yeah. And, totally. and he's really only worthy of his own forgiveness, right? Like it's, it, it, it kind of, you know, you're repackaging this, this like deity story, right? Where it's, it's not the son, but it's the father that, that kind of has to, you know, the, the father has to, the son doesn't have to like inherit the sins of the father, yeah. right? It's, it's the father's agency that overrides that, yeah. I think. And there's a small beauty in the way they kind of use our relationship to technology, right? Sam kind of puts the grid onto his mini USB that he hangs around as a keychain going on, right? So this kind of notion mm-hmm. that, you know, no one's really gone forever. And the digital is a way for us to keep that in mind, or at least the kind of soul or the mm-hmm. ethos of a person, which is, I think, is a great, another kind of transhuman nod. Maybe if there's anything you want to say about that, but I don't know. It's a cute, it's a cute way to kind of curtail the film. I think I think the best example of this, like the the undying potential of like the digital version of ourselves, is the way that I, 
it, it, there's this this kind of vague open ending or interpretation to how Korra reacts to the human world. Does she become flesh and tissue? Like does she become this kind of like fallible version of herself that we humans are, or does she retain this kind of like immortality? Right. I think I think it's a really interesting one, and I think I think that it, I think what I appreciate more is that the film actually doesn't really give a fuck about that. It just cares about her getting to enjoy the sun. I mean, we're kind of we're we're a little overtime. Yeah, totally. Um, but I mean, like, if there was gonna be a movie that we were gonna go overtime for, it was gonna be this movie, right? I, I think that's a good spot to end the episode too. Just being able to, I mean, we could not have ended the episode without talking about Caster and Zeus in some capacity at least. Yeah. So at mm-hmm. least we could add on some time for that. But if there's one thing I could say to maybe end my piece on the film, you talk about that line in Separate Ways, Worlds Apart by Journey. You know how we touched and went our separate ways, right? I'm almost. I always think of, you know, in this kind of situation, we talk so much about the divine, but the creation of Adam, you can obviously make the kind of comparison that you obviously have Adam as Sam, and you have kind of God, you know, Old Testament God as Kevin, and just being able to articulate this kind of our connection to the digital, our connection with the myths, kind of bringing that together Mm -hmm. and saying, is this this kind of one fleeting interaction that we have, right? Or it kind of touched to our senses. I think it's a brilliant way to articulate the way the grid happens. I'm not going to say, mm-hmm. you know, either Journey or Kaczynski were making that direct analog, but that, that's what it comes off to me, at least, right? I think it's just, it happens in one night. It's just one experience in both of their lives. And it's just, you know, our, you know, these two worlds brush together at a moment and they kind of create fiction. And I think that's the kind of beauty for me in the film. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, the beauty and friction. I like that. I mean, thank you for indulging me being able to do this birthday episode. I mean, guys, go watch Triangle Legacy. Don't let, don't let the haters <laughs> dissuade you from going to the grid, okay? This is a very good movie. I'm, it's, it's a bummer. I think that Garrett Hedlund didn't really get to do much else after this movie. I think, I don't even know what I think he had inside Lewin Davis. He was one of the, oh, yeah, he true. was the car driver, yeah. But I feel you. Yeah, he was, he was, he was good in that. He was good in that, but... You know what? I think most movies just need Michael Sheen there for five minutes to chew dialogue, you know, make a meal of it. Why not? This guys, thanks so much for, for bearing with us and listening to this episode. I mean, Tron Legacy is a, is a film that both of us kind of hold near and dear to our hearts. And the ability to kind of like, you know, get these thoughts out there into the world is something I think that means quite a bit to both of us. We didn't get too much into it. However, we will uh, link Olivia F. The Muse, paper, AI, cyborg, shamans, and transcendence configuring the ISO and the in in the mythopoeic sacred intron legacy i think that was the only kind of reading that we, yeah. we honed in on uh, otherwise i mean you can find tron legacy on disney plus you can find the soundtrack on spotify on apple music you can just find it on vinyl guys, just go just <laughs> just, just you know just 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 hook yourself up just like open the aperture and just like fly into the grid i don't really i don't really know how else to say it succinctly i mean just right? to, just to borrow another brilliant phrase from another brilliant movie it's time to jack in man it's time to jack in yeah, it is. Yeah, we're always jacked in on this podcast. As for us, as always, you guys can find us on Instagram and Twitter at DollyBackPod. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the episode and any other episodes, or if you guys have any criticism, constructive or otherwise, to share with us. I mean, as long as it doesn't hurt our feelings, that is. <laughs> Thank you so, so much for listening to this episode of Dolly Back, and we'll hear from you next week. Just want to wish a happy belated birthday to my co-host, Eric. Send him some well wishes. If you haven't at the top of the episode already, what are you doing? And we'll see you next week.